0: You can open your Bibles to John chapter 12. We are coming to the end of John 12. And if you've been with us in this series through the gospel of John, you know that these first 12 chapters, the primary focus has been the public ministry of Jesus. Jesus has come to the lost sheep of Israel. He has come to make a plea for Israel to turn and follow Him and put their trust in Him as the Messiah. And if you've been with us over these last 15 months, to try to pick out sort of the, the, the highlights of the first 12 chapters is like compiling a greatest hits list for the Beatles, right? I mean, you, I mean, it's hard to do. What are, the, what are your top 10 favorite Beatles songs? It's impossible. Such is the, the case with the Gospel of John. We've seen Water Turned Into Wine, We've seen Lazarus raised from the grave, the feeding of the 5,000 from a couple of loaves and some fish. Remember the man born blind. Remember the man healed who has been a paralytic for 38 years. Remember the showdown at the Temple Mount. All of these things have been amazing, but let's not forget they've all had one overarching purpose. And the purpose of these first 12 chapters is simply put, as John 20 tells us, is that you and I would believe you and I would trust, you and I would turn and see Jesus for who he truly is and to respond to him in faith and repentance. And as we've seen, faith, belief in the gospel of John is not a one-time thing. It's not an aisle walked or a hand raised or a pine cone thrown into the fire. Faith, belief in Jesus is an ongoing, active, purposeful, dynamic sort of relationship in reality. And John's call through all of these, recording of all these miracles, all these amazing things is not that we'd be entertained, not that we would be dazzled just to be dazzled, but that we would know Jesus for who he truly is and that we would turn and trust and give our life to him. But as we come to the end of John 12 today, we are about to see a massive shift in the gospel of John. Because the focus now turns from the public ministry of Jesus to the crowd, to the people of Israel, to the private ministry of Jesus to his disciples. In fact, this is the last public appearance of Jesus to the people of Israel. The next time we see him publicly, he is no longer a free man. He is a common criminal about to go to his death on a cross, he's been put on trial for things he did not do, and so here we have in John 12 these last parting words. It's his last public plea to the people of Israel, the people he has come to save, to turn and respond to him. So we're going to be in John 12 35 to the end of the chapter. If you can, if you're willing, if you're able, would love for you to stand as we read God's word. Jesus' last public plea. So Jesus said to them, verse 35, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me believes not in me but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment. What to say and what to speak. And I know that this commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Folks, before we pray for this passage and our time, this is a heavy passage. And there's different kinds of messages in Scripture. All of them have their ultimate ends of pointing us to the grace of God through Jesus Christ. But there's different sorts of messages in Scripture. This is, a, this is a passage of warning. And so we want to have ears to hear and eyes to see. And so would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? Would you pray for our time? Would you pray that the Holy Spirit would have his way? Lord, um, a tough text, a hard text. But we know, Lord, that, that love sometimes comes in hard forms. So give us ears to hear. Lord, we believe this passage is for our good. It's for the building up of the body of Christ. It's for our souls. It's for our children. It's for our marriages. It's for our relationships. So God, give us grace. Give me grace. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me take your seats. This message is called A Parting Plea for Biblical Faith and she's running out because it's going to be long, trust me. No, a parting plea for biblical faith. There, there's, four, there's kind of four things I see in this text or, or four kind of movements through the text, and here they are. First of all, there's a pronouncement by Jesus. Then there's a prophetic word from Jesus. There is a profession, and I use that word in quotes, profession. And then finally, there is a plea. So let's look at the pronouncement first in verse 35, when Jesus tells us very plainly, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. While you have the light, Jesus says, believe in the light. Now we've seen in John, John uses all sorts of really creative, cool metaphors to talk to us about what believing is like. And, and parents, this is great to use with your kids. It's a, it's, they're just such simple but profound word pictures. Remember, John says things like, believing is like drinking. He says, believing is like eating. Believing is like seeing. Believing is like entering. And those all sort of evoke kind of common metaphors in our own mind about what does it mean to believe. And here John uses another one. He says, believing, Christian, is like walking. And John's point here, though, when he talks about walking in the light or following Jesus is simply this. Turn and trust in Jesus, and here we go, while you still have time. Turn and trust in Jesus because... The window for responding in faith to Jesus is short, and it is temporary. And really, to emphasize this point, look at verse 36. And, and this is, again, a little bit of, of John's irony here. He's just given them warning, and then it says, When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's over. His public ministry is over. For three years, day after day, Jesus had stood up in the courts. He had traveled in Galilee. He had been in Judea. He had been healing, baptizing, proclaiming, teaching, preaching, calling people to faith and repentance. And in the space of one conversation on this Wednesday afternoon of Passion Week, he's done. In the other Gospels, it tells us, interestingly enough, on Thursday, the next day, people came to the temple court looking for Jesus because he had been clearly teaching and provoking and all these sorts of things, and it tells us in the Gospels that he was not to be found. Jesus's public ministry is over. The window of opportunity, at least as it relates to people seeing Jesus, engaging Jesus, hearing from Jesus, responding to the teaching of Jesus, is closed. Saw a movie recently, many of you have seen it, I'm sure, called Everest. It's based upon the book by John Krakauer, Into Thin Air. It's the true story of the catastrophe of eight people dying in their attempt to summit the Everest peak in 1996. You know, 4,000 people have succeeding succeeded in summiting um, Everest, and there have been about 280 deaths. That's about a 6.5% chance of dying. And so, husbands, don't, don't try this at home, okay? Don't, I've got to go live my dreams, and you have a 6.5% chance. But somebody remind them you have about that much of a chance on Thomasville Road, but nonetheless, okay? <laughs> nonetheless, the vast majority of these 280 people who died have done so in what, in what Mountaineers call the death zone. This is, the, this is that point on the peak from 26,000 feet to 29,000 feet. And it is at this altitude that the body literally begins to die. See, there, there's only about a third of the oxygen level needed to sustain life. And so what happens is that mountaineers trudge up, and, and if they stay too long in this dead zone, they, all kinds of bad things happen. Um, High altitude cerebral edema. I don't know what that is, but that sounds really, really bad. Extreme fatigue, loss of coordination, confusion, lack of judgment. People become unconscious. They lose, they lose sort of perspective of where they are. They sit down to rest and they literally freeze right where they are. In fact, you can still go through the, the, the death zone on summit and see many, many, many bodies left there because it's too dangerous to get them down. The point is, if you want to summit Everest, you have the smallest of windows in which to get up and into which to get back down. In fact, you have to get on the trailhead about 1 a.m. From, 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 the, from the very last um, base camp, Camp 4, because if you delay it all, what will happen is that the temperatures will drop so rapidly by the time you get to the summit that you don't have time to get off before you die. And so this story, it's fascinating, read the book, is this group, they were delayed by a storm but because they had so many competing agendas and there was a journalist with them and an investigative reporter and they wanted to put their best foot forward, they took chances they shouldn't have taken, they waited too long, they missed their window of opportunity. It's not cool to say this in a postmodern context, but everyone on planet Earth is living in a spiritual death zone. All of us have been given a narrow opportunity to exercise faith. One day, the scripture tells us, we will see Jesus face to face. Faith will become sight. And we look forward to that day. But we don't know when that day is going to come. We don't know when our day is going to come. We have been given a limited, narrow slice of life that the psalmist calls a vapor to turn to him and respond to him. Now, that is certainly relevant for those who might be here this morning who you don't know Christ. You're hearing about the claims of Christ, or maybe you have grown up in the church and you've always had the attitude of, you know, Pastor Paul, there's plenty of time to get my life sorted out. There, there's, there's plenty of time to repent. There's plenty of time to get things in order. There's plenty of time to, to kind of right the ship to which Jesus, if John, if they were here this morning, they would tell you, how do you know that? How do you know that? See, these are people that have been preached to every day for three years. And Jesus turns around and walks off and it is over. Can I can I also say something to us who are Christians here this morning? This doesn't just apply to non Christians. It applies to Christians, us as well, who know Christ in terms of following Jesus in faithful obedience. See, there, there, there's a there's an example that, of this in Second Timothy chapter four. Remember that Paul is about to be beheaded. He is in prison. He's under ball and chain, lock and chain. He is writing to Timothy, his last will and testament. And in chapter four, Paul says something interesting. He says, Timothy, I need you to gather my parchments, my scroll, my cloak, bring Luke, bring Mark. And you can just kind of see the scheming and conniving that's going on here. Hey, there, there's important things to do. I'm about to die. We're putting together part of the New Testament maybe. We're, this is crucial spiritual stuff. But then he offers a warning to Timothy. And what is it? Timothy, come before winter. See, he knows that if Timothy delays, if Timothy stops, if Timothy gets distracted, Timothy may not make it before Paul dies. Folks, what window of opportunity is God putting before you today to respond in faith which you knowingly, willingly have just been putting off? You just don't want to go there. It's going to make too many claims. It's too difficult. Maybe you're like, I I, I know I need to reconcile that relationship. I I know I need to go and make that thing right. I know there's this massive hidden sin in my life that I need to repent of. I need to confess. I know there's something that I've done to hurt my children or someone has done to hurt me. There's always, always time to get that rectified to which... This passage reminds us, maybe not. Maybe not. Because that's, that's a gospel warning that Jesus is giving us here. This is not antithetical to grace. It's not works righteousness. In fact, it's the most loving thing he can do to remind us, today might be the day. You know, I thought about this. I um, was putting this message together. When Susan and I first came to Four Oaks Church in 96, we, we did not have any children. We have four now, and they're starting to graduate and go to prom and all these sorts of things. And I can remember when we first started to have children, the sort of the sort of idealism that, that surrounded that time to say, well, we've got so much time to pour into them and to invest in their life spiritually. And, and it, looking up, and parents, you know this, it's gone, right? It's gone. <laughs> and God is like, place this sense of urgency just praying this week, God, I don't, I don't want to squander. I don't want to waste this time that you have provided. And by the way, we see this warning all the time in Scripture. Hebrews 3.15 says this, as it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Because when is the easiest time to start a diet? When is it? It's after Willie Jules tonight, okay? It's after, okay? But when is the best time to start that diet? Right now. Today. When is the best time to exercise faith? Today. Right now. Number two, Jesus also offers a prophetic word. And verse 37 has to be one of the most just sobering verses, I think, in all of Scripture. Verse 37, though he had done so many signs before him, them, they still did not believe. Think about that Greatest Hits album I was narrating here before. Think about all the miracles, the the words, the obvious evidences of grace but yet it tells us in this passage, as Jesus is turning his back on the crowds and literally exiting stage left, it says they still did not believe. They refused to acknowledge it. And, and you know what this is like, right? It's so exasperating when you feel like you just can't get something through to someone's head, right? I, I'm, you, you, feel like, you feel like resorting to the Marty McFly model of ministry, right? Hello, McFly. I mean, wake up. Don't don't you see what's happening? And again, it's just a reminder to us how deadly unbelief is. See, unbelief is utterly confounding. Unbelief will take the clearest facts of a situation, comport them to fit your own wishes and desires, and will lead you into terrible spiritual destruction. You may have heard the name Harry Truman, of course. This is not the former president. This Harry Truman is the homeowner um, owned a home at the foot of Mount St. Helens in Washington State. Now, You may have been checking the news lately and seeing all the Mount Kilauea and Hawaii exploding. And, of course, Steve Curio picks that time to go to, on vacation to Hawaii. He said it didn't, didn't bother him at all. But nonetheless, 1980, you guys remember it. When Mount St. Helens erupted, I remember being in Chattanooga, in Tennessee. There was ash, and there was all sorts of things, and crazy-looking sunsets. I don't know what it was like here, but what's interesting about this is they knew for some time there was virtually a hundred percent guarantee that this volcano was going to erupt. In fact, not only did they know it was going to erupt, they knew which path the lava was going to flow. And it so happened that there was a man named Harry Truman, an eighty-year-old man, born and raised in this house. And they went to warn him because this volcano ash, this, this molten river of lava was going to come straight to his house and through his home and through his garden bed and his yard if he wants this volcano exploded. And they pleaded with him. I said, Mr. Truman, the, the volcano is going to explode. The lava is going to come. Um, his, his kids pleaded with him. His family members pleaded with him. But he would not hear it. He wanted to stay. He could not be convinced of the impending doom that awaited him. So as the story goes, on May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens erupted. The lava flowed right in the projected path of Truman's home. And it was happily ever after, right? No, no, no. On May 18th, 1980, Harry Randall Truman died. He could not let go of his home even if it meant certain death. Because what is it that you cannot let go of? What is it that I cannot let go of? What is it that despite all the, the clarity that God has given us, the vision, the direction, the signs, the wonders, we have simply, we, we have simply determined in our hearts, I will not go there. The claims are too much. It's, it's too tough. It's too, um, it's too disruptive to my life. Interestingly, John quotes Isaiah 53, 1 in this passage. Look down in verse 38. Now, if you're if you playing play along at home, you know this is what we call a suffering servant passage. It's one we read every, every Christmas. It's actually a passage that prophesies prophesies apostasy. It's a warning. Listen to what it says here. Remember how how we quote every Christmas? He was despised and rejected by men. We esteemed him not. That's a prophecy about the people of Israel. And it's coming true right before our very eyes in this passage. Guys, this is why over and over in the book of John, we understand that no evangelistic technique can get past this, that, that, that no persuasion of human will. It's why we hear over and over again that the only remedy to this is God opening eyes. The only remedy to this is, as in John chapter 3, that a man be born again, which means we pray and we pray and we pray and we plead and we plead. And Jesus is pleading here because they would not believe in him. Now, verse 39 takes a pivot. And this is where, let's be honest, it gets unsettling. Because what we see here is that because they would not believe in Jesus, they in turn could not believe in Jesus. Look at verse 39. Therefore, they what? Could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their hearts and our eyes and hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now, let's be honest. That is some, that is, those are some tough words. God hardening hearts, God blinding people. Why does God still hold us responsible? What, what is going on here, Pastor Paul? And, and I think we need to spend just a little bit of time unpacking this to understand what John and Jesus and Isaiah are saying here and what they're not saying. Let me tell you, first of all, what I think they're not saying. They're not describing a a situation where here we are on planet Earth and we're doing everything we should be doing. We're worshiping God. We're seeking him in faith. Our kids are perfectly behaved. we're We're all seeking after him. And God, in the midst of that, sort of arbitrarily comes down and begins to say, no belief for you. I'm hardening your heart. That gives me great satisfaction. I'm, 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 t- I'm turning away your pleas for mercy and grace. That's not what Isaiah's talking about. That's not, what, that's, not what, that's not what is happening. What's happening is that God is sending his son to make a plea to sinful humanity. And they are not listening. Jesus is pleading with them. He's been pleading with them for three years. But yet, as we see, they sort of double down on their own unbelief. So in turn, and I think this is what Isaiah is saying, God in turn imposes a judicial sentence. And here's what I mean by that. God stops bothering them. God just says, have it your way. I'm going to give you over to your own sin and hardness of heart. I'm going to to pass over you. And, And if that sounds like a warning, and that sounds kind of scary, guess what? That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. You see, we see this warning, this kind of prophetic word through all of the Bible, One of those scary passages we don't like to talk about, but which we must, Hebrews 10, 26-27. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Pastor Paul, that sounds like you're talking about people who can lose their salvation. No, no, no. These aren't people who can lose their salvation. These are folks who've been exposed to the truth. They may have a cursory intellectual knowledge of the truth. They may have even grown up in the church and in Sunday school, but they don't want to count the cost. They fall away. They stick their spiritual fingers in their ears and say, I'm not going to have it. God, I like you at a safe distance and worship you in tradition on a Sunday morning, but you're not getting in here. You're not, you're not touching, you're not touching these choices in my life. And then it says in Hebrews, sometimes God says, okay, and just gives them over to their sin. Folks, that's why it's so important that we heed those words. When you hear the voice of God today, do not harden your hearts. That's why it's so important when Paul says do not quench the spirit that we refuse the voice of God. And some of you might say, but oh, Pastor Paul, I, is that me? Is, is this, is that me? Has God stopped working in my heart? Is that, is, that what I'm, is that what I'm confronted with? Which I would say, are you here this morning? Has God brought you here? Is your conscience twinged? Do you have conviction? Are you struggling? See, the, the, the situation that most concerns me is when people no, seemingly no longer have the capacity to respond to the grace of God in their life, which is why today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. You know, I had a meeting this week, and I had a great fear that I was meeting with someone who was in this place that had gone from would not believe to could not believe. But I was just amazed at, at the grace of God as I began engaging this person, and, and despite all the, the mess and the, and, the, and the muck, at the bottom of it, there was still this sliver there was still this sliver of light. There was still this opportunity where even though the, the, the mess that had been brought in from the past and all the sin was, was devastating, at the same time, there was this opportunity to say, today, I, I can't change yesterday, but today I can listen to his voice. I wonder if you can identify with that. That despite whatever path you have been on, that today, today is an opportunity for faith. That is the prophetic word Jesus gives us. Thirdly, there's a profession. I don't want to spend much time on this because we spend a lot of time in John on this particular issue. But in verse 42, look there, it says that many of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it now, we have to ask, why would John put a section in here about belief when there's the whole thing is about unbelief, what's, what's, what's going on with that, to which I think, and you will understand this if you've been with us, John's not talking about belief here at all. See, in, in, the, in the Gospel of John, we've seen there's belief with a capital B and there's belief with a little b. And all through the, the text, and, and this is so crucial, I think, for Americans North Americans raised in Christendom that we understand the nature of true belief. How many times does it say in the John's gospel, we've seen it over and over, where it says things like, and they believed in him, but Jesus, for his part, knew their hearts and he didn't entrust himself to them. Why? Because they were after the glory of themselves, not the glory of God. They were, they were attaching themselves to the ministry of Jesus because of what they think it could get them. And this is something we see oftentimes in the American church, where I'll love God, I'll serve God, I'll follow God, just as long as God comes through with the things that I think He needs to come through for me. But whenever God says no, whenever God takes something away, then I'm hitting the road, I'm out of here. These leaders believed in Jesus, and what what, what John means by this is they're not dumb. Jesus is raising a dead man. Of course this man's from God. Of course he's doing amazing things. Of course he's doing miraculous things. But they're not believers with a capital B because they won't follow him. They won't trust him. See, they, they believe something about God or about Jesus, but there's something that they don't believe about themselves. They don't believe they're really broken. They don't believe they're really sinful. They don't believe that they really have to repent. They don't really believe that they have to turn away from here and turn and trust Jesus there. John says biblical belief is not just acknowledging truths about God. Because lots of people believe intellectual truths about God. The demons believe truths about God. And they tremble but they are not saved because they're not turning to him. That's what biblical belief is, turning away from sin and turning and trusting in Jesus. Have you made a profession of faith? Lastly, a plea. Look down at verse 44. This section is, is kind of like an epilogue, it was, I think, part of the original discourse here, but John kind of situates it at the end of this text to sort of emphasizing, emphasize this idea that Jesus is making a final plea. This is his final plea. And he says something really interesting, verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. Now, what does that mean? What do you mean Jesus doesn't judge? Well, we've seen this in the gospel of John over and over. Jesus says, I came to a world that was already under judgment. I didn't come to judge the world. It doesn't need any more judgment. I came to save the world. But he does remind us, look back at verse 48, that there is indeed a judgment. Verse 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. You see why it's so, so important that we uphold the entire word of God, that we don't dare jettison one iota of it, because the word of God is God speaking to us. I know there's an increasing amount of pressure to jettison, and and by the way, this isn't coming from outside the church, this is coming from inside the church. There's increasing pressure to jettison the portions of God's words that are no longer palpable for a postmodern palate. So this idea of a God of wrath or a God of judgment, that, that's Old Testament stuff. Back to a well-known pastor, preacher, everyone would recognize his name. Of a megachurch in Atlanta, it was in Christianity Today. He said, our main challenge as the postmodern church is to unhitch our faith from the Old Testament, quote unquote. Yet, wrath, judgment, is an integral and important part of faith. And let me, let me talk about that experientially and theologically. Experientially, don't you, don't you notice who the ones are that most often talk about not needing the wrath of God? Who are those people? People like us. People who are affluent, people who are comfortable, people who, who, who have no threat, domestic or international, really, to speak of who live their lives in mainly insecurity. But who is it across the globe? What Christians across the globe where wrath and judgment resonate? It's those people who, Christians who live in Syria, who've had their entire livelihoods, dwellings, families slaughtered by ISIS and other terrorist groups. It's those who've had their daughters kidnapped and taken as sex slaves, and never, ever to be heard from again, you better believe judgment and wrath are experiential realities that they look to to say, Lord, come quickly. Because if there is no judgment, if there is no wrath, there is no peace. There is no justice. There's also an experiential, I'm sorry, a theological reality to this as well. John reminds us of something in John three thirty-six. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Now listen to this. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, the wrath of God is a problem for all of us. And ultimately, what Jesus is telling us is that the wrath of God will either come to rest fundamentally in one of two places. It'll come to rest upon you or it will come to rest upon his Son. Because Jesus was made a propitiation for us, that the wrath of God was poured out on him so it would not be poured out on us. Jesus is making a plea here. Someone will bear your wrath. Someone will bear my wrath. Who will that be? And Jesus says, That's why I go to the cross. For the joy set before me to bring many sons and daughters to God, that's what I am doing for you, and that is my plea. You know, the the, the real scandal of this passage is not that God gives over sinners to experience the full consequence of their choices. That's not the real scandal here. The real scandal is that our God is a God of great patience, who's slow to anger, who's abounding in love, who has given you and I this opportunity today to say, I want to come to the light. I want to trust this man, Jesus. Recognizing, as Paul says in Romans 2, it's the kindness of the Lord that leads us to repentance. His mercies are new today, so today do not harden your hearts, but listen to his voice. Roaks, who are you and I listening to?